Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Ah, yes. Oh, nothing. It sounds like my microphone's overdriving a little bit. Uh, you sound fine. Good. Don't sound as good as me, but you know. It's understandable. <laughs> you know who, who sounds good, looks good, is good. <clears throat> that would be uh, RJ and Josh. They absolutely, but I was thinking of somebody else. Oh, okay. <laughs> John Blumen, yes, of course, of course. He's a beautiful man, indeed. Yeah, a beautiful friend. He's he's a beautiful friend to all of you because he has been paying for the show, so you don't have to for fifteen freaking years. Uh, you know, and during that time, he's also been making some amazing brewing equipment. Everything from uh, you know, you more, uh, you know, just solid, uh, uh, fundamental brew pieces of brewing equipment in the anvil line up to, you know, through the, the Blickman line of more bells and whistles, more features, yep. more convenience, more, uh, repeatability, uh, and on up to the pro line where you're getting, uh, you know, the ability to do, you know, five, 10, 10 barrel batches, whatever you want. If you're ordering brewing equipment, you should be, you do it, do yourself a favor and check out BlickmanEngineering.com. Lots of goodies there and uh, lots of knowledge and lots of good people. So check them out, support them. Uh, you can send an email to uh, John Blickman, uh, use uh, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. That's right. Go straight to John Blickman. You can tell him how much you love the show or hate the show, whatever. And uh, apparently, uh, Rich says John B gives a back rub for every top tier system you buy. There you go. <laughs> I, I did not know that, but uh, yeah, he he can be a, he can be a little touchy feely. I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> if you're if you're listening live uh, and watching on Facebook. Uh, you can in the comments section there, you can ask any questions you want, uh, and we uh, possibly can get to them. Uh, depends on whether John sees them or not. That's I'll do my all. best. He will do his best. That really sounds that sounds great, John. That sounds great. Okay. Uh, Fred asks, uh, dear John, he said, uh, he sent this to your personal address as well as sending it oh. to the Bruce Drawing address. So he's hoping one of these will get to you. Confusion reigns when specifying the optimum pH for mashing. At different times, the pH is expressed as measured at room temperature 
and at other times the pH is specified at mash temperatures. You yourself apparently confused these on the last Bruce Strong show regarding adjustment of brewing water. You referred to targeting a pH of 5.2 to 5.6 measured at room temperature, but in the very nomogram you described on the show, note three states, for best results, the mash pH should always be between 5.2 to 5.6, regardless of beer style when measured at mash temperature, and also on the nomogram uh, uh, in, is the following note two, the actual pH of the mash temperature, approximately 150 degrees Fahrenheit, is typically 0.35 pH less than it measures at room temperature. It's clear that you have gone to the trouble to clarify this distinction, but because of the slips that you propagated, confusion abounds. Please confirm the information in the nomogram. Note three is the closest to being correct. Fred wants to know, John, you screwed up. What's the matter with you, John? Yeah, yeah. Uh, different versions. Um, yeah. I, in the previous edition, the third edition, it did say at mash temperature as opposed to room. Hmm. I got that clarified to me, corrected it in the fourth edition book. Yes, the correct mash pH range that we're looking for is 5.2 to 5.6 measured at room temperature with a mash sample. Mm -hmm. uh, pH will be about three-tenths lower if measured at mash temperature. So if you're measuring directly into your mash, which I don't recommend because it's hard on your pH meter, um, there you would correspondingly looking for 4.9 to 5.3, roughly. But that 0.3 difference varies between styles uh, due to the different uh, amounts of buffering and different kinds of wort, you know, pale wort, stout wort, low gravity, high gravity, a lot of factors affect how much that pH changes due to temperature. But in general, 5.2 to 5.6 is what we're looking for at room temperature. If your mash pH is high, it will still work, okay? Um, we prefer a little lower, but not too low, because that it helps improve uh, the fineness of beer flavor. If you go too low, if you go below 5 at room temperature, then you tend to shut down your amylase enzymes, and you lose uh, conversion and yield. But um, high pH, even if it's 6.5, it's going to convert great. Trouble is, it will taste really harsh and, and astringent. That's, that's due to your tannin extraction at those pH levels. So there, there's the reason for the range we recommend. Yep. Yeah, don't, don't uh, measure your mass temp or your pH at uh, mass temps. You want to chill your sample down and measure that. Wesley uh, asks, Lord Jay-Z and Vassal Palmer. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. I recently brewed an extract beer kit for a Belgian strong dark ale from Northern Brewer, their number eight kit. And I had more problems than I cared to think about. First, I couldn't brew the kit for a month after it was ordered, and it spent two weeks at room temperature. During the brewing itself, the stove burner died about halfway during the boil, stayed at 207. 
so I had to transfer burners. Temp never dropped below 206 at that time. At the same time, I had to do two hop additions, add two pounds of DME, two pounds of candy sugar, 15 ounces of priming sugar, and thought boil over and fought boil over through the whole process, forcing it to take till boil end to do all this. That said, OG was in the range of being 1080. Uh, fermentation was rapid using one liter starter. So I know I under pitched but a bit, but fermentation started within hours and was putting out more CO2 than the airlock could deal with. Uh, overnight, the bucket blew its lid and was open for probably two hours before I woke up. I quickly mixed a bunch of sanitizer, sanitized the lid and wiped down the rim of the bucket with a sanitizer soaked rag and resealed the bucket. There were no further incidents. Ambient air temperature above and around the bucket maintained 70 degrees for the duration of the ferment. Final gravity was 1015. Sounds good. I transferred the beer to the carboy for one month to age before bottling. At bottling, mixed it with 140 grams of table sugar and was worried about not carbonating due to lack of yeast and held for, uh, for the bulks. So for far for carbonate. Uh, what? Can't you guys can't drink when you when you write these questions? Because um, we drink when we read them, and then it's double drinking. It's it's kind of a game of telephone. Um, so targeting carbonation at 75 Fahrenheit, except for a power outage lasting two days, dropped over to the room to 50 to 55. Carbonation seems to come along fine, if just a little slow. I opened one to drink and it produced a one quarter to half inch head. So that seems encouraging. But while drinking, I'm worried the flavor is just off, if not just completely. It's kind of a mixture of yeasty and green flavor. Can't put my finger on it. It's not acetaldehyde because I've had that one happen to me before. It's like a really assertive hop green flavor that's bitter and next to no malt flavor. Writing this, debating whether I should dump the beer or seeing if aging can save it. Ooh, that's a long one. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm pretty sure what happened here. One is it is a high gravity beer with a considerable amount of adjuncts. Yeah. Uh, two pounds candy sugar, two pounds DME, and then some mashing, I guess. Oh, it's extract beer kit. Um. I don't know if there's grains in that kit or not, but if it's two pounds DME and two pounds candy sugar, uh, that is a lot of uh, sugar. And if the ambient room is 70 degrees, I always stress that fermentation temperature is not the room temperature. It's the temperature of the actual liquid fermenting. You mm -hmm. cannot ferment at, you know, if it says ferment at 70 degrees, it doesn't mean the room should be 70 degrees. It means the actual liquid should be 70 degrees. And what happens in a 70 degree room is that thing probably got up into the 90s uh, during fermentation, especially a big vigorous fermentation like that. I bet you it generated a lot of heat, a lot of simple sugars. You're dealing with a lot of alcohols and you're probably dealing with a considerable amount of acetaldehyde. It may be masked in there with other stuff, but, but that's the issue there, I think. What do you say, John? Yeah, uh, that seems quite reasonable. Um, I think, you know, he, he's not getting a lot of malt flavor because 
of the proportion of simple sugars, um, the, the one month in the carboy prior to bottling seems excessive. Um, you know, so slow, slow carbonation in the bottle, chances of oxidation, which also cut into your malt character. Um, yeah. I was going to read a, sh uh, 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 a question by Joe Zassa about developing and maintaining a house yeast. Okay. But I think that's a good idea for a show. I think we're going to make a show out of that. Uh, let's see here. We should take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. Yeah, uh, no, Jay Z's medical quarter, great idea. Love to hear you know what's new and synthetic in your life. People always are asking for Jay Z's medical corner. Uh, Chris says, "Hey guys, I have two all grain sessions under my belt, and I have a question for you about something that strikes me as odd. Both batches have come out with much higher original gravities than I was expecting, and I'm wondering what I'm doing or not doing that causes this." First, my all-grain beer was the English Mild from Northern Brewer. The target original gravity was 1032, but the actual was 1040. The second all-grain batch was Northern Brewer's Oktoberfest, which has a target of 1058, but the actual was 1066. Both were done using the batch sparging method in igloo coolers at a mash temperature of right at 152 degrees. The mild was mashed with a ratio of about 1.5 quarts of water per pound of grain, while the Oktoberfest was mashed with a ratio of about 1.25 quarts of water per pound of grain. We circulated each one to the tune of about a quart of wort. It was running nice and clear, such that the first runnings of about two gallons took nearly 25 minutes. The remaining four gallons of second runnings louded for about 45 minutes, so sparge uh, or so. Sparge water was right at 170 degrees. I haven't tasted the Oktoberfest. It's still in primary, but I've tasted the mild. It's good flavor. Finished at 1012 for an ABV of 3.68 and a period attenuation of 70%. Uh, that is the Y-East Neo-Britannia yeast. The only thing about the mild, however, is that it does seem to have a fairly thin taste to it. The mouthfeel is not very robust. 
I'm not sure if this is due to the fact that I may have messed something up during the mash or that I carbonated pretty low using only half a cup of corn sugar for five gallon batch. If there's any other data you need, let me know. Uh, sounds like he said, I tried to take decent notes during the pre day. Sounds like he did. Uh, very, mm-hmm. very good job there, Chris from Tennessee. All right. So I, uh, my initial thoughts are the kits that a lot of homebrew shops put out are, you know, when they suggest an OG or something like that, they're assuming people don't do a very good job of, right. you know, mashing. They do an okay job of mashing and, uh, you know, and sparging. And you're just doing a much better job of it than, than uh, they expect. And that's why your OG was a bit higher. Um, I think on the mild, a mild's always going to have a pretty low, uh, you know, initial oh, gravity and finishing gravity. It should taste, you know, pretty mildish. And it sounds like it's right. You want a lower carbonation. Um, if you're serving it, you know, try stirring it up, putting, you know, one of the things that, that they do in England, certain parts of England, and it's, it's, it's fighting words, depending is to use a sparkler and, and to force it through to create a frothy, creamy kind of feel. Um, you have to be into that kind of beer for it. Um, and it may also be just the recipe. Uh, I highly recommend a little book called Brewing Classic Styles, and uh, the mild in there is, is quite good. Uh, let's see, what else? You know, the final yeah, boil volume has a lot to do with it. Yep. yep. It could be that you, your, your, your volume was, was off, as John suggests. I mean, what yeah. else could it be, John? Um, yeah, you may have boiled it down a little bit further, thereby increasing the final gravity. Um, the, the malt amounts that they actually sent you may be Awful bumped up bit. a little bit. Another couple <laughs> handfuls on their half pound included just, you know, to make sure you got your money's worth. And if you're doing a good job, that could easily bump up your gravity a few points. Right. Um, uh, you know, that brings up a good point. Uh, you know, always weigh the ingredients that were sent to you to yeah, make sure that yeah. it is correct. Because uh, somebody could screw up at the uh, the brew shop and you know overweigh it or just be careless in filling filling bags or whatever it might be. So um, you know just really confirm it. I think any home brewer needs to have two good scales: one for measuring hops, which is also appropriate for measuring cocaine, and uh, another for measuring uh, your your malts. You know, uh, and it, it, you can get them so cheap, good, good scales uh, off of eBay or Amazon. Uh, there's no reason not to have them. Or you know, check out your your local homebrew shop. I yeah. bet you they have good good ones. And if you support your local homebrew shop, they will be there when you're desperate for <gasps> my yeast is dead or my I don't have the hops that I thought I had, or I'm out of this, or I'm out of that. Uh, that's why you need to go and, uh, you know, buy stuff from your local homebrew shop. Yes. Maybe it is a dollar more for something or, you know, a couple of bucks more, but when you buy from them, it keeps them in business. 
they also bring more homebrewers into the uh, into the fold, into the into the hobby, and then you've got more friends that share your passion. Uh, yep. around. So, hundred percent support your local homebrew shop. They're you know they're uh, you know critical to the survival of the of the the, the sport, the hobby. Yeah. And, uh, you want them there. Um, one one follow up to the previous guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Calculate your efficiencies when you know, you, you're when your numbers are different than expected, um, you know, and calculate. I mean, calculate the expected efficiency of the kit. You know, if they tell you the gravi- the anticipated gravity, OG is ten fifty, and they're sending you twelve pounds of grain. You know, actually, you know, if you calculate out that, that's like a sixty percent efficiency. If you're brewing at 75% or 80% efficiency, yeah, you're going to get way over that anticipated gravity. So, you know, run the numbers, do the calculations. They're documented in how to brew and brewing classic styles. Um, that will help give you some inf- better information on what you, what you might expect. I was going to say, you know, get yourself a copy of how to brew because there you have the uh, all the calculations you need for you know, all these basics of brewing, they're, they're in there. Uh, let's see here. Adam was asking, uh, I was reading Farmhouse Ales from Brewers Publications the other day, particularly the section on beer to guard. The author mentions that lagering this beer will help reduce esters. I know that the majority of esters are produced during the growth phase. I also know that esters can oxidize, lending other flavors and aromas. I have never heard that esters can be lagered out of a beer. Can you explain this? Thanks, Mills. I think that's in error. I would agree that the the author may be mistaken. Perhaps some uh, brewery uh, said that that was the case or maybe you know I guess it's possible Adam is somehow misquoting it but um, I don't know he seems pretty pretty clear on that the so yeah the so the ester the the compounds the acids that are produced during fermentation, uh, different phases of fermentation, um, which may be determined by things that happen during the growth phase. There's a, it's a complex uh, process, <laughs> fermentation. Uh, but, you know, it is, you're right, uh, Adam, that the, um, you know, that process of fermentation is producing the compounds that will become esters. And esterification of alcohols, uh, the acids and the alcohols combining to become these esters uh, will happen. It, it can happen during fermentation, but also um, it can happen, you know, post-fermentation uh, over time. Uh, esters can pick up as well. Um, I mean, once an ester has been formed. I don't know a, the process of ester reduction. Uh, well, oxidation can change a lot of things, but I'm not sure that, um, yeah, I don't know. Or, you know, they can change, but I don't think you're going to get rid of them. 
I don't think you can log her out, Esther's. Well, see, there's there's a point of uh, what do I want to say clarification there. You don't logger them out, you know, by say cold storage doesn't mm-hmm. make esters go away. Oxidation, mm-hmm. you know, exposure to oxygen or oxidizing elements within, you know, the, the beer, uh, I, not necessarily yeah, molecular yeah. oxygen compounds that can well, cause chemical reactions for other compounds could modify esters, uh, say, sure. Well, and that's what Adam's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but he's saying, I've never heard that esters can be lagered out of a beer. Right. And I think maybe that's where I was saying, okay, just cold storage of lagers is not going to make them go away. I'm more familiar with esters being created during extended storage due to esterification, which is still a yeast function, uh, a growth function, the combination of an unsaturated fatty acid with and alcohol to detoxify the yeast cell. All right. Uh, good question, Adam Mills. Uh, thank you. Uh, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Those folks, they're kind and funny and generous. And uh, RJ and Josh, I love them both. Good people. And uh, they're smart. And uh, if you have questions about uh, brewing you can send them in to you know brew strong at the brewing network.com and we will eventually get to all of them but uh a faster way maybe in to stop in a brew chatter and just say hey guys i got this problem can you help me out uh they know they know great beer and they know great brewing and they have the gear there for you and while you're hanging out you can have a pint often you can have a pint of heretic uh, good folks, uh, brew chatter, brew chatter.com. Tell Josh and RJ, uh, I sent you, uh, let's see here. Uh, Adam is asking what, or I, sorry, and Andy, Andy from Arizona is asking, uh, when creating a recipe, you can adjust the various amounts and types of malts, adjuncts, and hops to create a balanced flavor profile. For example, by adding American two-row with Marisotter, you get a different flavor than if you combine two-row with Munich. Can different yeast strains be used in the same way by using several yeast strains in the same fermentation to develop a balance of flavor? For example, I like some of the esters and spice notes produced by Safbrew T58, but sometimes the esters are too distracting. I start the fermentation with a cleaner, less estery yeast, and then add some T58 afterwards towards the end of primary fermentation. Would I have any flavor impact to the beer? Also, some of the banana flavors in a wit or hefeweizen are nice in moderation. Uh, there shouldn't be any in a, really in a wet wit beer, uh, but not if they are overpowering. Uh, would the yeast byproducts balance out if two or more yeast strains are used, or would the population of one yeast monopolize fermentation and the flavor profile? 
Also, are there any other problems that might complicate trying to execute fermentation with more than one yeast strain? Do you know of any amateur professional brewers who do this? And if so, what yeast strains would be more likely to work well in tandem? P.S. Thanks uh, for all you do for home brewing. I almost quit brewing after my first batch of beer, but after listening to approximately 70% of the archives and reading John Palmer's How to Brew and Jamel Sainz Chef and John Palmer's Brewing Classic Styles, I haven't brewed a bad batch since and have found a lifelong hobby. Thanks, Andy from Arizona. Cool, cool. It depends. <laughs> it depends. Two or more yeast strains can create complexity of yeast character. Mm -hmm. um, it is a subtle effect. I, you know, in my experience, um, you know, it's not where you pick up beer A and beer, beer B and it's like, wow, look at this difference. It's, it's subtle. Very often a, a multi-strain will have, I don't you know, it, like if Chris says, it depends. You can have enhanced esters, you can have subdued esters, you can have you know, any kind of character, depending on the two or three yeasts to combine and the proportions at the time of fermentation and the fermentation conditions and lots of other things. Do you use multiple yeast strains at Heretic for many beers? Uh, we have, we've, we've done a few, um, but you know, not in any of our general regular production beers, uh, generally, uh, have we started on one? Uh, we were doing some high gravity hazies and we we're mixing a hazy and a high gravity yeast uh, to get the proper attenuation. Um, but yeah, I think so generally um, it's interesting because I, I think you, you can pitch you know 50 percent of this 50 percent of that and you can get 50 percent of the flavors of each the the thing is the the flavors sometimes have an interaction right uh to mm -hmm. where you you get a different you know character overall in some aspects it's not like fermenting them separately and then just pouring the beers together and getting something right. different. I think that's one of the, if you really want to do it consistently, you would prepare your work, you'd split it into two or three, you'd pitch the yeast in each of these separately, and then you would blend the beers together. That's your way of really controlling it. When you pitch different uh, yeast, different organisms into uh, a, a given beer, um, the issue with that is, the yeast will compete uh, and it's possible that they both just get along copacetically or one kind of outstrips the other and one's more efficient than the other. Uh, so you can get different characters. Uh, one of my favorite beers in the world is uh, brewed by Harvey's out of uh, uh, England. Yeah. And they have, um, I keep forgetting if it's nine or 11 different organisms in their, uh, their yeast culture. Because they're open fermentation. They've been doing it for like 150 years or however long it's been. And uh, these open squares, they, they've got this culture going in it that it's extremely complex. And if you were to take 
those out individually and ferment with them and then blend those nine together, I don't think you'd end up with the same beer. I think there is an interaction of, well, this organism is acidifying while this other one is fermenting. And because this organism is now fermenting at, or this yeast is now fermenting at a lower pH than it normally would, it is producing more esters or less esters or more this or more or less that, right? It changes the environment that the, that yeast is acting within. Right. So that's the importance of these other organisms. Um, uh, you know, can they, uh, you know, the, the, the environment that they produce. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very tricky and it's not, you know, a simple thing. I was asked, uh, recently on a show, uh, podcast out of, uh, England about, uh, you know, what would, if I could brew one beer that I don't brew, what would it be? And, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's Harvey's best bitter because <laughs> one, it's a great beer, but two, um, it's something I can't brew today. You know, most, right. most beers that other people brew, I think I could brew them, you know, give me, you know, especially doing all those, uh, you know, uh, can you brew it, uh, episodes. I learned a lot about brewing other people's beer and how to, how to clone it. And, uh, you know, doing, uh, you know, I can, I can get pretty close. If there's a beer I want to brew, I can brew it. Yeah. The Harvey's you know, best bitter would be very difficult. That'd be very difficult because of the complexity of the organisms in there. I could kind of get in the general range of things, but I can't, I can't clone that beer. That's, that's too tough. So, right. Well. Oh, uh, good question, Andrew. Uh, any, uh, any questions in the, in the uh, comments? Yeah. Well, uh, throw it up uh, the question about pH meters with the connected temperature probe. Mm -hmm. And as I com commented in that chat, um, pH meters with the temperature probe, whether it's separate or built in, the purpose of that is the automatic temperature compensation, which is only designed to keep the meter calibrated at a different, you know, and when it's measuring a sample temperature than the calibration temperature. So if you calibrated at room temperature, and then measure a sample at say 90 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, the thermometer and the uh, ATC would compensate for that, that change in temperature of the sample and give you an accurate pH reading at 90 degrees. Doesn't account for the physical change in pH or the chemical change in pH uh, due to temperature, that actual change. So, that's, that's why we still insist on room temperature measurements so we can compare apples to apples. And then Lat65 Brewing Company says, we need some good old Jay-Z's medical corner. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> should I do it now or should I wait? I don't know. Guess you'd look on your face, John. So one of the things I realized, <laughs> welcome to Jay-Z's medical corner. Uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the, if, if you're listening with small kids or people of delicate nature, tune away now. 
turn the volume down or put some headphones on. No, uh, one of the things uh, I noticed about getting older is that, uh, you know, it's possible to get essentially varicose veins in your scrotum, in your, in the sack, right? In the, in the boys, in the peaches. Uh, I don't know if it's the, the pressure of hanging or it's the, uh, the, the vast size of the stones within the sack that is causing you know, the, the pressure that uh, due to gravity. they are all there popping out uh, purple, bold, bulging veins uh, filled with blood. And uh, it's, uh, it's quite concerning. It's quite concerning. I, I can imagine. I, I confess I need to find a mirror if I wanted to self-inspect. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I would, I would highly recommend uh, everybody uh, take a mirror down there and uh, take a little perusal and see what's happening uh, south, of, south of the navel. Uh, there is there's, uh, you know, sometimes uh, something quite uh, surprising down there and uh yes uh uh scrotal varicose veins are are an actual thing i think um, and I, you I, know i i <laughs> i i feel like i am uh, one zipper accident away from bleeding out all over the floor i'm just, you know just nick one of them bad boys and i i think i got a gusher on them. that could be bad yeah i can add Imagine, yes. <laughs> you, you probably didn't uh, think uh, today would go that way, but uh, there it did. And so wraps up another Jay-Z's Medical Corner. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, <clears throat> Jay, uh, Jeff, uh, he's got a yeast washing question. I was reading my trusty copy of Yeast, The Practical Guide to Fermentation. On page 170 about washing yeast, it says... Working at a temperature of 36 to 40 Fahrenheit, 2 to 4 C, acidify water to pH 3 using food-grade acid. My question is this. Would food-grade acid also include lactic acid? Thanks for the show. Yes, Jeff. Um, lactic acid is fine, phosphoric, whatever the, the, the acid you want to use. Um, so there's a there's a... There's yeast rinsing and there's yeast washing. And the purpose of yeast washing uh, is when you have essentially contaminated yeast that has, you know, it's a mixture of yeast and bacteria. You use a low pH solution to rinse the yeast pitch to uh, reduce the uh, bacterial contamination level. So... Breweries do this uh, that uh, pasteurize their beer and you know don't want to pay for another pitch, things like that. Um, I would highly, and I think I say in the book, you know, I highly recommend that you don't go through this process. It's stressful to the yeast. Um, is it pH three or pH two? I can't remember. Two something. Uh, it's got to be pretty low. It's got to be low enough to kill off the yeast, but not too low. Um, so it's got to be pretty low. Um, but uh, the the thing being, uh, if you don't, um, uh, you know, you'll you'll stress, you'll stress. 
you stressed me. That looked very odd, John. Uh, you'll stress, oh. you'll stress, uh, page 170, you'll stress the yeast uh, by doing this and you won't completely get rid of all the bacteria. So if you have a bacterial contamination, I would uh, urge you to just dump that pitch and start with a new pitch and figure out where your contamination came from. Uh, yeast rinsing is a, a very valuable tool and uh, much less harmful to the yeast. If you have a clean pitch of yeast that just has a, an amount of tube you want to get rid of, you can shake that up with some sterile distilled water or uh, sterile uh, uh, tap water. Uh, shake that up and, uh, you know, decant the clean yeast off of the, the tube. That'll drop really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, 2 to 2.5. So yep. 2 to 2.5. See, I, I knew it. The pH 3 was way too high. Um, there you go. Thank you, John. I wish I had a copy of that book. That's that's a pretty good book. I remember, I remember writing it. Uh, right. Uh, but good question, uh, Jeff. Uh, all right. I'm just randomly picking questions here. I've got. Uh, mm-hmm. I have not put any effort into. Uh, <clears throat> Aaron asks. Aaron from Pepperell, Massachusetts also known as the middle of nowhere. He asks, uh, I keep reading about extract twang. What do you and John think about uh, this? Is it a legit fear? What can cause it? How can I avoid it? Also, when was the last time you guys brewed on a newbie-like setup? Extract, partial boil, minimum ferment, temp control. Thanks. Um, Extract twang, uh, in my definition, is uh, oxidation of malt extract. It is, um, it results in, in very, uh, I don't know, I, I, I call it like ballpoint pen aroma, um, you know, the smell of ink. Mm. Um, it can be, they're just oxidation type aromas that can come from there for flavors. That, that predominantly seem to be due to old extract, mm-hmm. um, especially old liquid malt extract that sat in a can for a couple of years, um, darker than intended and so on. Uh, and uh, brewing with fresh malt extract, brewing with dry malt extract, which has better shelf stability, pretty much does away with it. Right. I mean, good extract beers, you cannot tell they're made with extract. Because of I, twang. I, I, I would agree. So the, the whole thing about extract twang is false. Um, I, I think, you know, you can make award-winning beer. I did with extract, um, you know, uh, extract alone, extract with partial mash. I won, you know, it was more about the process and fermentation. Um, one thing I would say is about old extract. Um, so recently a new home brewer uh, gave me a beer to try and my comments back were this tastes like old ingredients. You must've used old, you know, 
make sure you get fresh ingredients. He said, yeah, you're right. I got the ingredients like a year ago. I was too busy. I didn't brew. And of course, they're stored warm. And I could taste it. But I want to say that old ingredient character is more prevalent in hops. And so when people are talking about extract twang, I think it's often really the hops that are the, the issue. Because when you ferment something that is oxidized or staled, um, generally the yeast will clean it up and it won't taste nearly as bad as it might have been. I, I'm with John that there is some uh, you know, staling that goes on that may still be present. So you want to always just use fresh, uh, you know, when you get your ingredients, you know, you buy it from a quality shop like brew chatter or more beer, um, you know, they've got fresh ingredients, you know, brew right away. Don't buy it and think, you know, Oh, I'm going to brew six months, a year from now, you know, buy it, you know, before you brew and, um, you know, I think that helps, but I think the yeast will clean up some of that, but the thing the yeast cannot clean up is stale hops. You've got to, you know, keep them in the freezer. You got to keep them in sealed bags in the freezer. And if you do, they're good for years, but if you don't, um, they're, they're, they're dead right away and you'll taste them in your, in your beer. And I think that that is a lot of times what the old timers were talking about as far as extract twang. Uh, extract, malt extract, today's modern malt extract is fantastic. These companies, uh, you know, that, that we're getting extract from, um, you know, the only one that comes to mind is Muntins right now, but, you know, there's a bunch of them. Uh, you know, they're fantastic. They really know what they're doing. It's really come a long way. And it really wasn't that bad back in the day. I think it just got a bad name because, uh, you know, brewers were you know, just negative on the, on the whole aspect. So, uh, I would not, uh, hesitate to brew on extract. So the question is a uh, second question or the fourth question, whatever it is. Hey, all you people, one question per, per email. Uh, when was the last time you guys brewed on a newbie like setup? John? Um, well, long time ago in terms of I mean, for me, a newbie type setup is a, is a cooler mash ton um, or a, uh, something like that. I, I brewed in uh, my Anvil Foundry a month ago. Yeah. Did, and uh, so that's a was all in one extract system. With, uh, extract yeah. with, uh, extract system. Perfect. I haven't done that in, oh, God, a year, two years. It's been a while for me. <laughs> yeah. I'd love, I'd love to do it again. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i enjoy the simple life at I some think, point that, yeah. once once i once i pierce a vein on my testicles i will uh, i will quit and i will spend the rest of my life puttering around visiting home brewers and brewing uh extract with partial mash uh, uh brew plant <laughs> it seems it's weird because i think before i started I would have looked at that as like, wow, that's, that's pretty significant. I look at it today as just like, oh, five barrels, man, what a waste of time. I could be brewing in a party, same amount of time. This is, this is such a, such a, you know, a burning of labor for not very much beer. It's like five barrels, 150 gallons of beer. That's nothing. 
but uh, you know, 150 barely, barely wet your whistle. Right, right. Ah, uh, but it's fun. You know, I'm, I'm doing more strange things on it, so I'm enjoying that. It's you know, hey, it's brewing. Any brewing's better than no brewing at all. All right, nice. come back. We'll wrap up uh, right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're in our, uh, we're answering your questions uh, live on Brew Strong here. If you have uh, questions for John and I, you can ask them at, uh, by sending them to uh, Brew Strong at thebrewingnetwork.com. It's best if you just uh, preface it with Q and A because then uh, I can find them much easier when I'm uh, doing these sorts of things. If not, that's okay. Uh, try and keep it to one question per uh, uh, email. Put the most primary information at the top and then additional details you can put in a paragraph below uh, so we can, we can kind of get through those things. Um, and if you're listening live, you can ask your questions in the chat by uh, or the comments section. Uh, here's one. Uh, let's see. Tarantino asks, is it smart to keep a lager yeast starter at lager ferment temps before pitching? It depends on how long. I mean, it's. Yeah, I would say that. Uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, you know, it, it depends on your pitching temperature. So, uh, your, 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 the temperature of your pitch should be within, you know, ideally at the same temperature as your wort that you're pitching into. If it is, you know, off, you really, the maximum is considered about 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you know, less than that is better. Five. I'd, I'd keep it within five degrees at the most. You know, I like to be one to two degrees Fahrenheit off at the most, uh, because uh, when you pitch a yeast into a drastically different temperature wort, you cause a heat stress, uh, and the yeast will will spend their energy uh, expressing this heat shock protein, uh, whether it's going hotter or colder. Uh, they, they have to deal with that temperature change and they're not, they're expending energy and they're, you're kind of jacking them up for your fermentation. So you don't want to do that. So I would, you know, whatever your lager yeast, uh, starter is, uh, you know, I would try and keep that at the same temps, you know, gently, you know, change the temperature to whatever it is, uh, you're going to pitch into or change your word temperature. Uh, when cool conditioning an ale or lagering, should I be, should it be without CO2 aside from purging oxygen from the keg or do you guys put CO2 to it for a while while it's in this stage? If you're cold conditioning an ale or, uh, or you're lagering a beer, do you have CO2 on it, John, or do you just purge the oxygen and let it sit? Um, just purge. Um, Although these days when I'm lo actually lagering something or, I mean, then to me, that means it's in the keg and it's in the, in the refrigerator ready, getting ready to serve. So I'm carbonated in it at the same time. 
Um, you know, you, we've, you and I have talked about uh, warm maturation in the past where we are getting the, all of the fermentation and maturation uh, reactions by the yeast done in the fermenter warm. So we know that VDK reduction is done, acetaldehyde reduction is done, the green flavors are gone, that beer is ready to drink except for carbonation and maybe clarity. So then we do the cold conditioning, put it in a keg, chill it down, apply CO2, it clarifies and is essentially ready to serve. Um, so yeah, I guess I, wish I, I said I would just purge, but actually I, because I've finished fermentation and maturation, I am carbonated in the keg while it's cold clarif clarifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same for me. I didn't, you know, put a high pressure on the on the kegs. I would, uh, you know, keg my beer and then uh, hook it up to, you know, service pressure, which tend to be like eight and a half psi or nine psi in the in the in the serving fridge, and just leave it there, and that was fine. Uh, Tarantino has another question, uh, and again, one per email would be would be helpful, but I'm willing to go through them. It just takes longer to do these. Uh, is there anything wrong with using your mash wort to make a starter? No, no. As long as the, the gravity is correct, uh, that's fine. Uh, one of the, the good things you can do is you can take uh, your, so let's say you've done your mash, you've run off your wort, right? And you collected all that. Then there is, uh, you know, your further runnings. You can collect those runnings and make starters out of that. And sometimes, depending on, you know, what the, the gravity is, it could be good starter wort. Uh, you may need to boil it to concentrate it up or, you know, add a little extract to it. But uh, those can definitely make a good starter. Uh, no, no issues with that. Um, I'm not sure if... Uh, what the rest of the question is. Can't really use priming sugar for making starters. You need to use... Uh, need maltose. Need maltose. Malt extract so. or wort, yeah. I mean, you know, table sugar would work in a starter. You would grow yeast, but that yeast would no longer be, you know, ready to ferment wort. It would be kind of shifted over to fermenting just table sugar mm -hmm. in a worst case scenario. Well, there you go. All right. If you have questions for us, uh, for John and I, uh, send them to brew strong at the brewing network.com and we will, we will get to them. Uh, we need to do just a whole bunch of Q and a shows because we're again, yeah. 400 questions back. So, we, we narrowed it down, but we, we really need to uh, buckle down and, and get through a lot of these. Uh, we appreciate your questions. We appreciate your support. Uh, the fact that you guys all listen uh, means a lot to us. And it means a lot to our sponsors, uh, Blickman Engineering, uh, Brew Chatter, and uh, all the other folks that advertise during the show. It helps uh, keep shows like this on the air. 
so please reach out to them and you know feedback at brooklynengineering.com and tell them how much you love the show and that you want to, them to keep paying for the show so you don't have to. Until everybody, till then, everybody, Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong, everyone.